Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hi there, I'm Brian Abana, and you're listening to the Mall Over Podcast. Hello, and welcome to a special Mall Over Podcast. Uh, This episode is an individual one off. Uh, Doug and I are here with a very familiar voice to all of you rugby fans. Um, I'm delighted to welcome uh, Ali Eakin from BT Sport and all of our commentary needs, um, who is going to talk to us about uh, an amazing project that, as I say, any rugby fan um, will absolutely love to hear. And anybody that's got any affiliation or uh, affinity with rugby will have a story about this particular tour. And obviously with the Lions coming up, uh, starting tomorrow against Japan at Murrayfield, um, it seems a great time to talk about this now. So Ali, welcome to the All Over podcast. It's great to have you on. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's exciting. It's uh, exciting times, aren't they? Lions tomorrow, Prem final tomorrow. There's a lot going on. Loads going on. And and. Yeah, it's just nice after all the, the stuff that's gone on in the last 12 months to to continue to, to have rugby and, and the fact that the Lions are actually playing is is incredible at the same time. So um, why don't you start off just by telling us a little bit about what the project is and uh, and where it where it came from? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, it's born essentially of my, my love of the Lions um, and particularly... 1997 in South Africa, which for you know so many rugby fans, as you've mentioned, it was it was the one. It was the one that made me properly fall in love with with the Lions as a concept. Um, and I, I suppose I wanted to do something that would fit with the 2021 tour uh, of South Africa. You know, there's no there's no magical number regarding, you know, 1997 and 2021 particularly, but I I was fortunate enough to cover the 2009 Lions tour in South Africa, which was in itself uh, an epic trip. Um, 
and I, I wasn't working on not working on the Lions tour as a whole this summer, but I wanted something to sit in that space that uh, would enable us to uncover a few more stories from 1997, talk to some of those extraordinary characters from 1997, and maybe, just maybe, help connect one or two new people to the Lions in a, in a slightly different way. I mean, obviously the video, which I'm sure we'll talk about, was absolutely critical to that. But I wanted to embark on this podcast project very much hoping to uncover some new stories as well as obviously cover some of the old ground that, that we all know from that film. Um, and I think we've achieved that. It's broadly down to the fact that there are such amazing personalities involved. Um, we wanted to be quite in-depth. Um, I'm working for this uh, podcast publisher called Audi, and they were happy to, to finance it once they understood the outline of the of the project. Um, and it will be a wider project. The podcast is called Inside the Tour, um, and essentially we're hoping to dig into some other tours of times gone by in other sports. I think probably the next one may well be the, the Ashes series of 86-7 down under with Mike Gatting. Um, we have a plan to, uh, to dig into the Irish uh, Football World Cup of 2002 with Roy Keane in, in Saipan, which could be quite fun. I mean, you know, there is, it's a rich seam, I think, uh, to, to mine. And I'm excited to try and do that with Jonathan Overend, who I worked with for years at the BBC, is an absolutely brilliant producer, um, sensational broadcaster, but, but a particularly sensational producer. Um, so it was just a wonderful opportunity, really. And to go that deep into one area is a real treat because so much of my stuff is quite fleeting. I mean, the commentary is, is amazing and I absolutely love it, but it's it's here today, gone tomorrow, you know, um, whiz bang we're done in 80 minutes and we're on to the next one so to, to have a, a longer term project was really fun for me um and like i said the, the biggest the biggest treat of all really was just talking to all those amazing people and and uh, remembering so much so many fond fond times uh, i can i can absolutely imagine i mean some of those future tours sound incredible as you know doug and i are massive cricket fans as well as rugby as well. So hearing the the the, uh, the 86-87 Ashes tour and stuff will be unbelievable. Um, and as as will obviously the Roy Keane. Anything Roy Keane's got to say will be will be fun. <laughs> anyway, yeah. um, interestingly, that for that one, Jonathan was actually on the ground in Japan, so he knows all the characters really well. And he was, I mean, he wasn't quite there in the restaurant where it all blew up, but but he was all butt. So um, yeah, the uh, again the characters are remarkable. He's got he's got brilliant relationships with with so many of them. So that's um that's going to be quite explosive, I think. I hope. <laughs> well. Get, let, let's get into the to the to the lions then. I mean, how how difficult was it to you know to get the the guys on board? Obviously, you've got a close working relationship with with Austin Healy, um, but and and he comes across very early in the in the first episode. But like get, getting all of these guys on board, getting them to talk about their stories, and getting them to to open up about a a tour that. You know, rugby tours are usually quite close knit things, aren't they? And and this one was the first one with the, the living with the lions video. But yeah. opening up, opening up about the the seams and the creases and the different bits and pieces. How difficult was it to to engage them for that? Um, I suppose there's sort of two two parts to that. The first is that we have the benefit of it being you know 24 years ago, which is. I I, I think a big benefit because people are more happy to talk about it. And and let's be honest that film was so raw 
that there wasn't a huge amount that was left uncovered. Um, and so we, we, we all feel like we've got a pretty good read on what was going on behind the scenes. Look, there was plenty more, plenty more behind the film, plenty more behind the podcast, I'm quite sure. Um, and there's a brilliant book, by the way, called This Is Your Everest, written by Tom English and Pete Burns, who we've we've collaborated with on, on the podcast. And if if people love the 97 tour, it's basically the podcast in in book format and slightly greater depth and includes a bit more South Africans. Um, so I would highly recommend that, by the way. But I, I think I think the history makes a difference in that, you know, people are are reflecting on it really quite a long time ago. And the remarkable thing was really that with every phone call I made, and in rugby, I suppose I'm fortunate enough having worked in it for so long now, more than 20 years, that I, I, I've, got some, I've got some good phone numbers in my, in my phone and not too many people are out of reach. So I was able to connect to pretty much everybody I wanted to quite quickly. But the reaction was the thing that really struck me because I've chased down a lot of people for a lot of different projects in the past and it, it can be really hard going. And this lot, it was only ever one phone call, one question. I'm doing this. Do you like the sound of it? We'd love you to be part of it. How about it? Yeah, no problem. When do you want to do it? Literally every single person I called, it was the easiest fix ever, which is a real pleasure, um, you know, knowing how hard it can be and how many circles you have to turn and hoops you have to jump through very often. So that that was um, that was wonderful. And it is tricky because of COVID. Obviously, we did everything by remote. Uh, I did a handful of people in person, interviewing wise. But I think for the most part, everybody was either on Zoom or you know recording their own material on their iPhones and things as well. So we had a backup. Um, but that was the mechanics of it. And I think we've all become used to to remote recordings. But in my experience, they're not what they should be. In as much as if you know how good an interview you can get when you're face to face with somebody. Obviously, doing something by remote is not quite the same. However, again, because of their personalities and characters uh, and because we ended up doing, for the most part, you know, a good hour with pretty much everybody, you know, in that time, it gets easier and you get more familiar and the stories just begin to flow. Uh, with those people that I know well, the likes of Austin, Matt Dawson, of course, I've worked with for many years, those sorts of guys, Woody, I... I I found that rapport very easy, but with people that I didn't know so well, you know, sometimes it took a little bit longer to kind of work our way into it. Um, but they were all so giving and so happy to chat um, that, that it actually came together really very quickly. And that's the, that's the vibe of the whole tour, isn't it? You know, you can hear them. Everything is so incredibly positive about that tour. Everybody's memories appear so positive right from the, from the very start, from the notifications, and you've got Austin Healy and Will Greenwood talking about their story of, of the selection process and the, and the letters, and you've got um, uh, Ian McGeekin and Frank Cotton and Jim Telfer talking about the kind of people they wanted. They didn't select the tour based on who were the best players, who were doing this for their clubs and who were doing that. You know, working out who were the best people for the positions, the characters, the, the the way they wanted to play, and and it was almost a very, you know, the the first I said first time the, the way that they approached it was was really um, structured, 
And yeah. they wanted to make sure that it was more about the people rather than about the 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 ability. I think if that makes sense. I, I think it was yeah. I think you know what you're what you're saying essentially was incredibly strategic. I mean, in '93 in New Zealand, my understanding was from from Geach that they they picked that squad by committee, uh, and it was a bit of a shambles on that front. So with this, they had a tight management structure. Some incredible characters, obviously Geach and um, and Fran Cotton had both played in 1974 in South Africa with the Invincibles. So they were held in unbelievable regard in South Africa, which I think also mattered actually uh, and in Jim Telfer they had a you know a, a double lion and a man of you know enormous resonance and they were very strategic about the way they selected their players as you mentioned it wasn't picked on national lines um, you could you could accuse you know perhaps some selectors in the past of being a bit lazy like that or oh, these players are playing particularly well for Wales these players are playing particularly well for England well let's let's slot them in this was about how do we beat South Africa first plan in place which players do we need to affect that plan and on that basis there were there were a few wild cards and of course it was a very very interesting period of of the sport because it had only gone professional a couple of years previous we had a number of uh, rugby league crossovers the likes of uh, of Alan Bateman Alan Tate Scott Quinnell John Bentley, you know, these guys brought a professional edge to the way they approach things. The, the rugby union boys, I think many of them had their eyes opened, to be honest, on that trip uh, in a really good way. And so you had this amazing blend, but they, they really concentrated. Actually, it reminds me a little bit of the way, you know, you hear Rob Baxter talking about his recruitment policy at Exeter Chiefs. You know, the first question he asks himself is, how is this player going to fit in to my squad in terms of their character and in terms of the way they play. How is that going to fit with the Exeter Chiefs style? And the Lions did the same thing. They had a jigsaw puzzle they knew they wanted and they had several parts of it. And then it was about fitting those extra pieces in. Yeah. So it was, it was extremely strategic, very carefully thought through. And I suppose you could argue, you know, very professional in, you know, with a capital P at a time when the sport was really just emerging from the amateur era well i you, think you can sorry russ you can no, see you that go. from the you can see that from some of the clubs that the players are playing for you know, it's a real throwback to like watsonians and howick and yeah you know, pontypreeve like probably the last players that will ever be picked for a lion squad from some of those some of yeah. those clubs I kind of miss it in a way I know, I know it's, it is, it's a bit of a throwback, isn't it? But yeah. um, it was just a re really interesting concept. I think with, with Inside the Tour, it, with the podcast, it was just really nice to be able to drill down and, and hear Fran Cotton talk about the mechanics of, of that. You know, uh, they were very clear uh, about how they wanted to play. Geach was the, was, was the master strategist, really. Telfer was the man who put it into practice on the training ground. Um, but he knew... That yeah, I mean everybody talks about matching the, the the box physically, and they were a monstrous team. I mean they really were huge, obviously world champions at the time. And people talk about um, taking them on physically because if you don't do that, you don't you you don't achieve anything else. But actually, it was much much more subtle than that. It was about trying to use their strength against them at the scrum, which is a, a sequence that we go into in great depth with, uh, with Keith Wood, particularly over the first test in Cape Town. It's, a, it's, this, it's this fabulous sequence where he talks about um, 
the training that they'd done about scrummaging lower. They obviously had these squat props in Paul Wallace and Tom Smith, um, who who was certainly not nailed on starters when they began this big adventure. Uh, there were more more vaunted, more celebrated props in that squad. The likes of Graham Roundtree and Jason Leonard were were probably expected to start. Um, but the tactics and the strategy just relied upon then scrummaging really, really low and asking the Springboks to hold their own weight at scrum time to the point where once they got it right, and it took a while to get that right, and some horrible training sessions in amongst it, which we hear about, involving some pretty beastly um, machinery, um, they were able to essentially use the Springboks' greatest strength against them, which was a, a real subtlety and nuance that I'm I'm not sure people even now understand because people still talk about what well, you've got to match the, the, the spring box up front. Well, if you can, brilliant, but very few can. Look at England in the World Cup final in, in Japan. They got done up front. And, you know, you need to have a, a plan to, to negate it if you can, overcome it if you can, or use it against them. And that's what they did so effectively in 97. I, I the more we talk about this, the more I've got memories just floating back. But I want to talk about it. so there's a lot made in the early episodes of this being a bit of a perfect storm between the the professional era and the crossover from the amateur days, the old school rugby tours, the the ones where you you play you know you played hard off the field and then you did a bit of rugby as well. Whereas this was very much you know there was there was lots of um, people looking after themselves transferring into that professional era and what is very clear is as you mentioned the rugby league guys adding that extra bit of professionalism and when you hear John Bentley speak and a lot of people will you know might have even forgotten about John Bentley you know that the wonder try he, he scored and you got Geach and um, Jim Telfer and Frank Cotton in the stands going go on Ben like but a lot of people forget about names and you mentioned uh, Alan Bateman as well like tourists that were incredible guys to have around, but also adding that element of professionalism, which really made a difference. I made a huge difference to to the way they trained. I think. I mean, there's there's a number of different references in inside the the podcast uh, uh, about the rugby league influence, particularly on those little things after training the extras, which I think now have become you know, very much part and parcel of every club side, of every international side, you know, going the extra mile, training at intensity, training at, at match intensity and even beyond on occasions. Um, and you mentioned that crossover, the amateur professional crossover. I mean, that that was essentially a, a mindset shift, really, in that they seem to bottle the best bits of amateurism, going out, having a few beers, enjoying their time, Yes, pranks. Yes, mischief. Yes, up to all sorts, you know, behind closed doors and, you know, and on tour in the kind of, um, you know, that sort of age old sense. But when they turned up to train, there was no messing. They crossed that white line and it was business. And that was a that was a rugby league mentality at the time, having been professional for so much longer. Um, and I, I think a lot of the rug, rugby union um, guys who, who had only ever played union, recognised that this was the next step. Uh, and it's taken many, many years for it to filter all the way through. You could argue it's still happening now. Um, but at the time, it was it was pretty revolutionary, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And and in some of the early episodes, it, it 
the, the second episode in particular, you talk about the, the team bonding in Weybridge and when all the squad get together and, and Austin tells about how he first met Scott Gibbs and they talk about going to the pub and you know, when they arrive, you know, in South Africa where they arrive and if you're in the midweek team, you know, you drink up until Monday. If you're in the, the, the weekend team, you drink up until Thursday. Sorry, you're in the weekend team, the test team, you drink up until Thursday. And if you're somewhere in the middle, then you don't know what to do. But you just make sure <laughs> that when you when your name is called, you are ready to go. And and that that sort of mentality across the tour seemed to really bond them together. Yeah, there's no doubt that the teams that are happy with each other are the ones that tend to perform on the field. Look at Harlequins right now. They were miserable in November, December, January. Um, they were not happy with their game style. They were not happy with the the way the management was, um, you know, behaving essentially as regards giving them their voice. And then suddenly the shackles are off, and they start to play their game. They start to be given a little bit more responsibility and freedom. And they're playing the most ridiculously good rugby right now, and have ended up in a Premiership final. They might win the title, which seems extraordinary, but it's no coincidence that that the team is happy. And that was something that Ima Geekin and, uh, and Jim Telfer and Frank Cotton, particularly in 1997, recognised that it's not all about the excellence of your training and the accuracy of your passing. Of course, all those things matter. The basics matter a huge amount. But actually, are you prepared to go well beyond what might be considered normal when you're down in the trenches and you're being pummeled? How much have you got in the tank? And do you care about the bloke that's standing next door to you? Are you going to make his tackle when he's missed his? Are you going to get behind him and shunt him that extra half a yard over the line that makes all the difference? And, and those things can only really be found in proper bonding, time with each other. It doesn't have to involve alcohol. I think sometimes... Um, we over-egged that pudding to some degree, but but it is something of a truth serum. You know, everybody's been on nights out with their mates and they have great stories to tell off the back of it. And it means that you care just that little bit more. You've had shared experiences. I mean, the army talk about this relentlessly. I would hesitate to use too many military analogies. But, you know, w when you've been right down into the depths with people, um, obviously, you know, we're outside of the pub now, but when you've experienced the hard times, you know, you're that much tighter to the bloke next door and it matters that much more. And I think, again, those that coaching team in 1997, as I hope we've uncovered in inside the tour, they, they really understood that in a way that a lot of other coaches were not at the time and indeed perhaps still do not. And they get so wrapped up in their data and their analysis and their, uh, their governance and their structure that they, that they kind of forget that these blokes need to be a band of brothers. It's that kind of sport. It just demands it. And I think that that, that little triumvirate really understood that and were perhaps ahead of their time on that front. Yeah, I agree. And you see like the, the whole band of brothers type mentality and those guys set a blueprint. And you, may, you hear Rob Baxter, you, to use Exeter and Rob Baxter as an example, their team is very much built on that personality, do these guys fit together? Can we have, can create a, a good environment for people to play rugby? Can we bring them with us? And I know Doug hates this, on this journey, on this like sort of ethos of good blokes playing together and, and doing the business. And 
you know, you can have the best individual players in the world and be a really bad team. But if you could have, you know, a group of, say, average players, but are a team and cohesive group, that it just makes all the difference. Doug, course, what is I, it you hate? What I is know. it you hate about it? You hate the journey? Well, look, it's too X Factor for you. I mean, we're, we're in danger a little bit of making out like these Lions are reeling playing Saracens. <laughs> I mean, Jeremy, Jeremy Gus got, you know, Lawrence Delaglio, you've already said props we had, um, Matt Dawson. These were world, world-class players. And no amount of cuddling, drinking and telling each other you love you makes up for being bloody good at rugby. And, and the Lions had some bloody good rugby players. Um, but that said, this this tour, I mean, yes, South Africa were world champions. They, they won it in their backyard. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I think there is... Look, this, this tour, much, much like Russ, was... I didn't know a lot about rugby before this tour. Um... I was very much a Barbarians. Whenever the Barbarians were on Grandstand, that was my rugby, and I, I absolutely love the Barbars. Um, but the Lions are my next true, true passion. And um, we, we've, um, we, we've definitely made this Lions team out to be a, a, a lambs to the slaughter kind of team. But there was some truly world-class players in that side. Oh, they were sensational. And I think, uh, yeah, you're, you're right. In, because it's because it's become sort of myth and legend, I think that there is the danger that that happens. Um, and you forget the the calibre of those players. And of course, so many of them went on to, to extraordinary things. You know, the English, the English World Cup win in 2003 is the obvious example to Lalio and Dawson and, and co. Um, but I, I think also you've got to remember quite, quite a lot of them slightly came a bit left field. I mean, Tim Rodby was sensational in that test series. Dawson was never supposed to be the starting nine. Obviously, the injury to Rob Howley was, was critical. In fact, when, when we get to the, the first test in Cape Town, that extraordinary dummy where the, the Red Sea parted for him, um, you know, he maintains, as we break that whole thing down, he maintains that had Howley done that, he'd have been smashed into next week because they'd have been waiting for him. They knew mm. that that's what he did and that therefore they'd have had it covered. But because he was Matt Dawson, he was from Northampton, he hadn't really played a great deal for England at that point. You know, he believed that the box hadn't really done a huge amount of homework on him, certainly weren't expecting him to try something as audacious as that. And so it was a real sort of lightning bolt that, that came out of the blue. Um, but, you know, there, there were some fascinating strategic bits in amongst it all, not just the scrum, obviously the selection of Neil Jenkins at, at fullback. You know, but as he says in, in Inside the Tour, I was never a fullback. He didn't like playing fullback. He'd done it on a couple of occasions for Wales when Arwell Thomas, I think, was picked at number 10. But he didn't like it. He didn't have the pace for, for uh, a fullback to sort of cut the line in, in you know, dramatic style. He could cover the backfield, but he wasn't the quickest. He was strategically very savvy. But the, the bloke played out of his skin, not, not just kicking the goals. He, he adapted in a remarkable fashion. And his goal kicking was well, was legendary, wasn't it? And you know, to listen to him talk about his processes in his own mind, going back to his little village where he practiced and grew up, that was where he took himself in those moments of high drama in Cape Town and Durban. He shut the world out, and he went back to his village, and imagined that that's where he was with a set of posts and a ball. 
And I always find that sort of thing utterly extraordinary because I can't, I can't really, uh, you know, those of us who, who were never good enough to, you know, to play at, at the Millennium Stadium or Twickenham or wherever it happens to be, I, I think always marvel at people who have that capacity to be so cold-blooded, if you like, and clinical and process-driven to get such a remarkable job done in, in such a maelstrom. That's, that is a skill that very few people have. And Neil Jenkins had it in spades, but, you know, so, so did any number of others. You know, Guska in that moment uh, in Durban with the drop goal, in, in, incredibly clear-headed. He, was, he wasn't even supposed to be in that position, quite obviously. Townsend was at the bottom of a ruck. Um, you know, so there are any number of people going above and beyond, I suppose, and, and, in, in their own different ways. And, and again, that, that's sort of the epitome of the Lions. What what are your personal memories going back to to ninety seven? Um, obviously, it would have it would have stoked a lot of things for you. Um, yeah. You know, what what's what's your you know your biggest personal sort of standout from from ninety seven? Well, the the big standout really. I I I just left university. I was going um, I was going to uh, uh, to do a postgrad at City University in broadcast journalism that year and. I'd actually the big the big memory that I have is actually of what I'd played cricket that Saturday afternoon, and um, we'd watched um, we'd watched the Dawson Dummy together with with my cricket team, and I'll just never forget the impact that it had on us all because it was so ridiculously audacious, and made such a mockery of the Springbok defenders and so many of them staring you know in the wrong direction as he disappeared over the try line. So that was, that's my one sort of standout memory, if you like. But I suppose subsequent to that, I was living with some mates in London. And uh, it, as with most people, it, w- it would be based around the film, probably. Because although we watched the tour as it happened, as it unfolded, particularly the test matches, it was the film that brought, brought it all to life for us all. Because it was, the go-to, it was the go-to video, obviously it was on VHS in those days, that we stuck on uh, if we ever had a spare minute. It, that's what that's what went on. So I've watched. I, I tell you what, I've probably watched the first twenty minutes of it um, upwards of two hundred times because whenever we went out and came back from the pub, that was what went on. But of course, I fell asleep regularly after about twenty <laughs> minutes. So I've seen the first twenty minutes a huge number of times, and um, obviously I've watched it through a few times subsequent to that. But that 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 really is my memory of it, and just just kind of really d- awestruck at at the coverage that those boys managed to get behind the scenes um obviously it was the it's become the seminal sports documentary all the amazon prime um material that's followed and and yeah they 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 just not they've not touched the sides of it that this was so raw nobody nobody will ever come close to anything like it again it won't be it simply wouldn't be allowed um, you wouldn't get the access for one, would you? You wouldn't get, you wouldn't the, get the, the openness. Yeah. And, you know, the idea that you would mic up the Lions coaches every morning. And by the way, they started to do that by themselves after a bit. On the first morning, the boys walked up, as they told us in Inside the Tour, they, they told us they walked up to, to Geach and Jim and they put their microphones on. And there was a bit of grumbling and like, oh, what's all this about kind of thing? Because they were nervous about it, as you would be. And they put it on. Uh, because they knew if they didn't do it first time around, they wouldn't get them on at all. But by you know the end of the first week, they were putting them on themselves first thing in the morning, 
Same with the same with the dressing room. First match, they went into the dressing room, and because they they understood that they needed to be in the dressing room pre match, and they got slung out. So they went and had a word with Fran, and and said, "Listen, if we don't get in now, we don't get in at all." So he said, "Okay, don't worry, I'll have a little word." I think Jason Leonard was captain that day. Fran had a brief word with Jason Leonard. In they went, and they just blended into the corner. Somehow or other, they managed to blend with all their clobber, all their cameras. And they knew, again, that if they hadn't been in there for that first match, they'd never have got the good stuff. And again, it was somewhere nobody had been. If you hadn't been in one of those dressing rooms at at elite level sport, you have no idea what went on in there. So it was the very first time we got a glimpse into the inner sanctum. And it was priceless as a consequence, wasn't it? Absolutely priceless. It's the the gold standard of, of any sporting documentary that's that's ever been made and you know you, you mentioned the amazon prime stuff now which is which is all very good but everybody's very aware mm. everybody is very aware of of the fact yeah. that they're going to be on camera now you know whilst these guys were were there they just they don't seem to care the players don't care nobody cares because they're so focused like laser focused on what they're trying to achieve and and that comes across in the film. And, and I mentioned before we started recording, I was fortunate enough to tour South Africa the year after in 98. So the summer of 98, literally 12 months on. And we went to Cape Town and we were on the pitch at Newlands and people were throwing Dawson dummies in the corner. And, you know, we, we then went to, to Durban and we drove from Durban all the way to, well, to Pretoria and Johannesburg, but via... Uh, Kruger and up sort of round the top and, and back down and we must have watched Living with the Lions because it was it was probably about two and a half hours wasn't it on on VHS around yeah, it's there. almost three actually almost three um, and we spent a lot of time on that bus and we watched it on repeat over and over and over again and it became like to it felt like to us we were we were treading the footsteps of the lions as 15 and 16 year old boys we were following the lions in in what they did and we went to a place i mean you know we went to a place in in umschlanger called cotton fields which was a which was a bar in umschlanger and we're all 15 and 16 years old and we're we're getting right on it like nobody cares and it was a school tour and you know i, I guess if our parents knew what we were getting up to that they probably wouldn't have liked it too much but you know, this was a bar the Lions were in 12 months previous and people were commenting and saying, like, the Lions were here, guys, and now you're here. And it was just the most phenomenal thing. But the biggest standout for me, as I remember watching that, is around the kangaroo court and Tim Robber giving, uh, having to give sole use of his mobile phone, you know, because the England guys with the, the BT cell net, as, as is mentioned on the, on the pod, you know, the international roaming contracts and Keith Wood and, and Simon Shaw as the the big burly bouncer. And it's just, it's those things. It's those little memories, those little things about a rugby tour that make it so very special. And that crossover between the, the professional and the, and the amateur era was not never more visible than at those points. Because yeah. I think today, you know, whilst that sort of stuff may happen to a certain extent, I don't think it was, it would be anywhere near as, as loose, should we say, as it was then? I think, I think it's probably the last tour before proper media training and a sort of mistrust of anything 
like yeah. that. Um, Very true. I mean, there was there wasn't even a. I mean, there was barely a media communications manager. I mean, it was a very, very loose arrangement that in those days, the journalists just pitched up and had a word with the coach, you know, on the side of the pitch at training. That was kind of how it worked. And yeah, there were a few organized huddles and this sort of thing. But uh, I mean, there was a guy who was nominally in charge of it, but it, it, it was nothing like as structured. Um, so they were all that much more accessible. But I, I think as well, you've got to remember the players, regards to film, the players, they didn't they didn't know really what it meant because it hadn't been done before. They didn't really understand what the crew were doing. Some of them kind of bothered to find out, but they had no concept of what it would become. And I mean, not even the filmmakers had a concept of what it would become. I mean, Fred and Duncan, who made it, you know, as we tell in the, in the podcast, you know, there was a 30 grand remortgaging that went on to enable them to finance this trip. That's what uh, that's what the Lions took off them for the rights. And when they took it to the big broadcasters, obviously ahead of schedule and said, look, we're going to do this. Uh, would you be interested? They, they got laughed out of town because everybody thought the Lions were going to get battered by the world champions. And, well, you know, why would we want to watch a British team getting smashed, on, you know, in a different continent? It's, it's, it's bonkers. Um, and so they, they had wagered an awful lot. But as a consequence, you know, literally the players, they reacted to it in the most natural of ways. I talked to Brian O'Driscoll at the end um, of, uh, of the, the film episode where he talks about the impact that it had on him as a player. And he was one of those schoolboys Russ, who was literally clambering over the chairs in the TV room to to try and get a seat to to watch the the test series and then to watch the the film as a consequence, and he, he said it really lit a fire in him about international rugby, but particularly about the Lions as a whole. He, even at that young age, I mean, he said it was pie in the sky to think that I might I might tour with the Lions at that point. But he ended up in two thousand and one, and four years later, he's playing alongside so many of those players. So it had a massive impact on everybody. But he said, even in two thousand and one, where they tried to recreate the magic of the ninety seven film, he said it was nothing like the same because people knew what it was. People understood the impact it was going to have, and and reacted and responded very differently. They knew what it would be to be a character in the film. Um, so you got people hogging the hogging the camera, hogging the limelight, playing up. You know, all the stuff that you just, you really didn't get it at all in 97 um, because I think they just thought it was going to end up in some dusty, you know, dusty studio somewhere and wouldn't wouldn't achieve a great deal. Instead, it, it became the one thing that ignited a passion and a love of rugby across an entire generation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, go back to the, to, to the podcast. We're, we're two episodes in. Um, the next episode is, is episode three. Uh, what can you tell us about episode three and, and beyond? Episode three is all about the training. So we're, we're, we're learning about the, the mechanisms of, you know, trying to put some of these tactics into, into practice. Um, so we, we talked to Woody a good deal about the scrum tactics. Um, it, it, it wasn't really the mechanics of it to that point. We get to that later because we, we try and dissect it kind of as it happened in the first test match. But it was the schedule... It was the beastings from Jim Telfer. It was understanding how he worked. Um, and also the mechanics of trying to impress, I suppose, um, as an individual, whilst also showing the coaches that you were very much prepared to be part of the collective. Um, you know, Woody 
was fascinating on that because he he really wanted to you know m- make his imprint at, as a hooker as a dynamic hooker um and in those early days you are slightly feeling everybody out a little bit and and being a bit careful trying not to tread on too many toes whilst also being abrasive enough to be the guy that can really go toe to toe with the springboks you know quite quite a delicate um delicate balancing act so a lot of, a lot on the relationship with with Jim Telfer a lot on the on the scrum machine the brute that they called it it was this horrendous hydraulic machine which which I think Matt Dawson said it, it would just never be used in um in modern day rugby it, it had the capacity to put something I forget I forget the numbers but the the power it was able to exert on these bodies and of course with with a live scrummaging session against other players there's always a little bit of give somewhere um in a machine there was no give whatsoever but of course it it put a lot in the tank um ready for when they hit the ground in in South Africa so there was all those sorts of things um talk to uh, Neil Jenkins about his kicking routine I mean he little things you know that we unearthed in, in inside the tour that I found extraordinary. You know, he'd, he'd previously always kicked off sand. So he was facing the prospect of touring South Africa with a bucket of sand. It was the first time that Neil Jenkins had kicked off a kicking tee, which seems extraordinary, really. And I suppose it shouldn't make a huge deal of difference because the mechanics of the kick actually remain the same. But it's little details like that that I, I think really bring the, the podcast to life. Um, and yeah, just to, just talking to all these characters about how they prepared before they left South Africa was really interesting. I mean, I look I look at it and thank goodness, we, you know, this is a 10 part podcast series about the 97 Lions. We don't even get to South Africa till till episode four. You know, that's. <laughs> I suppose it puts into perspective just how important the prep is and was and everything obviously just going on now or has been happening in Jersey. You know, all these bits, they really matter in the in the bigger picture. Excellent. Doug, have you got any uh, any questions? Do you think enough time has passed that people that you're talking to <clears throat> are dropping the what goes on tour stays on tour mantra? Do you think they're really letting, do you, I mean, do you think, I mean, obviously there's going to be some stuff that will never come out, but do you, you know, um, are, I think are lips that, loosening slightly? I think they are. I mean, there's one story that we really hesitated as to whether we should tell or not. Inevitably it involved Austin, um, but there, there is there is the story of the missing DVD camera, uh, whereby <laughs> the filmmakers Fred and Duncan told us that they'd given John Bentley that that DV camera, and, and Duncan said as a sort of slightly throwaway line, "Yeah, well, he he lost the first one. Do you remember? He lost the first one." And my ears pricked up. I'm like, "Okay, hang on, how does that work?" And he said, "Yeah, well, there was a, there was a bit of confusion as to what happened to that." Said Fred, and I was, <laughs> "Okay, there's a story here somewhere." And then when we spoke to Austin, uh, it became clear kind of what had happened, and we had to tell it in a slightly sensitive fashion, but essentially. It involved Austin in a slightly compromising position. Um, Bentley had burst in on him and had filmed at the time and then disappeared off and ran down the corridor and all the rest of it. And Austin, and then he'd been boasting to the others that, that he was going to be showing this on a big screen that night. And it was, <laughs> you know, popcorn and everything. And Austin being Austin, you know, for, for all his blather and his chat and his nonsense, he, he's, he's a most fantastic bloke, actually. And he's very happy to have the piss taken out of him. And 
I think he would have gone along with pretty much all of it, but he was not prepared to have this shown in front of the entire squad. <laughs> <laughs> and he ended up, he ended up clambering over the balcony of the room next door to John Bentley's because Bentley locked his room quite obviously. He clambered over the balcony inside Bentley's room via the window and then literally turning his bedroom upside down to try and unearth this, this videotape, which he found in the most obscure place possible, you know, the sort of place that you would, you know, you'd hide the crown jewels if you owned them. And he, he put it in the machine. He got to the point where he was at his most compromising, <laughs> blacked it out, and then it allowed it to continue, and then put it right back where he'd found it. So that <laughs> this grand showing in front of the whole squad. And, you know, he'd given it the big sell every which way. And Austin was sitting in the corner just chuckling to himself in typical Austin Healy irritating fashion. <laughs> so there's things like that. And, and I think, you know, back to your original question, br- broadly speaking, yes. Look, there are all kinds of things I'm sure that, w- that we won't hear about still. And they probably only talk about to each other. And that's entirely as it should be. Because I think in amongst the, in amongst the mystique and the-, and the mythology, we, you know, we need some things to remain just amongst them, and, and I'm quite sure they've, they've kept the, the best nuggets to themselves. Yeah. It just would be... I just can't imagine how much fun it must have been. Yeah. Like, I mean, having been on a few tours myself, to go on one like that with some of the characters, because they're all, you know, media personalities now, aren't they? Yeah. So they're yeah. all great, great blokes, and, you know, completely must have been incredible. <laughs> I think the the the, the boys' own element of it is 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 very clear for everybody to have seen through the film, and hopefully we'll we'll, we'll feel that through inside the tour in the podcast. I I think it's it, when you hear someone like Matt Dawson talking about that moment. He said, I played for a long time. I had some incredible memories. I won the World Cup, for heaven's sake. Delivered the ball to Johnny Wilkinson for the drop goal, obviously, but. That Lions moment, he said, when you've played for as long as I have and you've played with as many extraordinary characters as I have, but you still have that one moment that everybody remembers, that's incredibly special. You know, I I, I think there are very few people who who get that, really. It's a bit like, you know, going out on your shield. It's, it's, It's sort of Richie McCaw quitting at the end of the World Cup and in 2015 with the with the trophy very few sports men or women have that moment i suppose and so he's incredibly grateful that he that he had that moment i'm sure jerry in his incredibly laid back fashion jerry guskett would would say the same about the drop goal i mean he said you know it was it was just one of those moments i didn't really think about it i just did it and he said i'm still dining out on it now you know bentley said you know my wife is constantly giving me grief because she said, look, you went on one tour, you scored one try, you got one speech, get over yourself. <laughs> <laughs> what a way to be brought down to earth. Yeah, they're all, they're all pretty down to earth about it. And-, and I suppose of them all, and I need, I need to mention this guy probably above, uh, over above everybody else, that we have a special Doddy Weir episode as episode 10, um, the My Name is Doddy episode. And that was obviously a tour in which Doddy Weir was was front and centre, not just because of the video and the, you know, mistaken identity and all the rest of it that we all remember him for. He was playing some unbelievable rugby on that tour. And 
both Jim Telfer and indeed the doctor, James Robson, told us in the podcast that it was not a given that Martin Johnson would be would be necessarily lining up in the, in the second row for that test series. So good were Jeremy Davidson, complete outsider in the second row, uh, and Doddy Weir. He said it was eminently possible that those two would have been picked at lock. So good was Doddy on that trip until that horrible injury um, against Mpumalanga. So, um, you know, there, there's some amazing stuff about Doddy in there, from Doddy in there. You know, happily we were able to talk to him and he'd, he'd, <laughs> he'd poor bloke, he'd fallen about six, week pre- six weeks previously and he said, you know, when I fall over now, it's like my hands are stapled to my side. I've got nothing to break my fall. So he said, you know, I broke my teeth and I... Um, got stitches in my head. I had to be carted off to hospital and all the rest of it. But you know, he he is the most extraordinary character. Anybody who listens to this will know exactly what I'm talking about um, because you know we're talking to the converted here, aren't we? But to hear people's reflections on Doddy from '97 was amazing. The impact that he had on people. You know, John Bentley told us he was in tears when Doddy went home. Doddy wasn't because Doddy had his moment when he was told that his tour was over and we all remember that from the film very touching when when he he recognizes that his his time is done but when he had to leave john bentley said i took myself off to my room and i was i was i was crying you know tears of despair because in a very short time we'd become very very close and i i knew how much i'd miss him and so to hear those things was really powerful and to a man they all spoke, and women, they all spoke incredibly touchingly about him, his impact, his character, his remarkable sunny disposition and optimism in the face of just the most horrible disease. And, and the final episode really is talking about the work that he's doing at the moment uh, with his foundation. They've raised more than six million quid, um, partly funding resources to try and find a cure uh, and partly sending finances to people who are struggling with the condition to enable them to live, you know, as best they can with the help that they need. And he, he's a lesson to all of us uh, really about how, how to, how to behave, how to conduct yourself. You know, I asked him what, what he would like his legacy to be. And he simply said, have fun. <laughs> and that's Doddy. And a big character for all of us who love rugby in 1997 and he's still with us now, and his energy is palpable still. And I just was privileged to talk to him, and we're very privileged to have him on the podcast. Absolutely incredible. And I think that's, that's a, great, a great point to, to kind of just slide away from the Lions and, and say, you know, I'm looking forward to listening to the rest of these episodes. The first two have given me a real appetite, and, and the memories that it's stoked from me, it's given me goosebumps listening to to Jill talk about uh, Doddy and their relationship and, you know, everybody, you know, all the, all the players talk about everybody else. It is just all so very, so very fond memories. Um, before I let you go though, obviously there's a big match or there's a couple of big matches happening this weekend. Um, obviously last weekend, the premiership semifinals, Harlequins with an absolutely incredible comeback over Bristol um, which will go down in the memory is probably one of the best Premiership matches ever, let alone Premiership semi-finals. Um, taking on Exeter this weekend, 
Um, what what do you think? You know, do you think Harlequins have, have had their moment? And do you think they can get themselves up again for Exeter this weekend? I mean, that is the multi-million dollar question, isn't it? I, I, listen, all logic and rational thought points to the Exeter Chiefs because they're the ones who've been there, done it. It's their sixth consecutive final. They've got the wherewithal, they've got the personnel, they've got the, the coaching structure, the, the history, the recent history. And you do wonder if Quinns can find that emotional pitch again after the most extraordinary Saturday afternoon um, potentially ever in the league, as you mentioned. Um, but because of that afternoon and that second half in particular, I'm very... I'm very wary of making a statement. All bets are off. Uh, the only thing I would say is that you don't come back from 28-0 down against Exeter. The way Bristol play, you know, there are always going to be opportunities. And that was very much the message that was being reinforced by Quinns at half-time at Ashton Gate. They knew that they would get chances because Bristol turn over a lot of ball. And Quinns are very, very good with turnover ball. Chiefs do not turn over a lot of ball. They're going to have way fewer opportunities in that regard, Harlequins. Um, and they're just a much tighter defensive unit, the Chiefs. So you give up even 12 or 15 points to Exeter, you're not reeling them in, in my opinion. So I think, again, we always talk about the fast start. I do think the start is really important to Quins. I'm not sure how important it is to Exeter because they are, I guess, the original 80-minute side. And you always hear backs to talk about that. Um, you know, it's about breaking breaking a side down across 80 minutes, not not the first 10. It does matter. Of course, it matters. It's always better if you get off to a fast start. But it doesn't matter to them if they go down a try or go down eight, 10 points potentially. But I do think it really matters to Harlequins. I just love the way they're playing, though. It's, it's, it's rugby with a smile at its face, isn't it? And in Kerr and Smith, you've got two halfbacks who are playing out of their skin. You know, seeing Marcus Smith flower the way that he is at the moment is an absolute pleasure. And they've got it in them. They've definitely got it in them. But I think, yeah, if I put my rational, logical head on, it's Exeter probably. Yeah. I think Quinn's, Quinn's are thriving on this underdog up on the rails um, thing at the moment with all the stuff that happened with Paul Gustard like over back end of last year, him leaving his position. And they've just come from nowhere. Like the, you can see the enjoyment in the way they're playing rugby. The likes of Louis Liner, Tyrone Green. You know, it's like the, uh, unbelievable. unbelievable. I mean, it, everyone's going, how come these guys are letting Mike Brown leave the club and go to Newcastle, or, you know, not renewing his contract? Uh, they obviously knew that they've got people like Tyrone Green coming, uh, coming from... Um, from the academy and, and through the ranks. Um, the oh, light green came from South Africa, you spud. Did he? Yeah. <laughs> I thought he came from their academy. I know. Sorry. No, he came from the Lions. But, right. Fair yeah. enough. Then my mistake. Yeah. No, they, they're, they're, they're in a good place. And there's a little bit of, um, you could almost say there's a little bit of the 97 Lions about them. They're going into this. No one believes in us. No one yeah. thinks we can do it. Team talks right, right themselves. Um, Maybe we'll see a few players. I, I can imagine. I, I can honestly see people like Kerr and Marla jacking it in if they win this. Well, that's a, that's a big call. Um, and we've spoken already we? about that that capacity of going out on your shield. You know, yeah. if, if they could pull this off, well, they won't top it again, will they? Neither, no. neither of those two boys would top that. 
especially with Saracens back, coming back. Well, exactly, and then Danny Kerr's been very clear pointing that out. You know, they he makes them favourites for for next year's Premiership, and you know, with all those characters and all those lines in that squad, you, you you'd have to say he's got a point. So if if they're going to do it, this is the moment, and I think they feel they can get underneath the chief skin. Um, you know. They've been past masters actually at winding Saracens up. You think about some of the tussles that those two sides have had in, in recent times. There was Niggle, obviously, on account of everything that, that Saracens were up to. It really bothered the Harlequins players. They've got a great respect for Chiefs, but I think they recognise they've got to paint them as the bad guys and really get stuck into them this weekend. I think it's going to be really feisty. Uh, I think they're going to go hell for leather. They're going to try and play at breakneck speed. And I think at the very least, we're going to have a hell of a spectacle. Yeah. And if they bring Esther Hazen back in, he's, it could well, uh, could well be their, their X factor because they've gone from, they have that 8, 9, 10 axis that they use beautifully. Add yeah. Esther Hazen into that at 12, it, it could be. It, oh, it's a whole other dimension. Yeah. And, and, they, and they really missed him in the last few weeks, funnily enough, still playing great rugby. But I mean, what a target, man. He, he's. he's well, he's the best twelve. He's been the best twelve in this in this league in, in this season, that's for sure. And yeah. that there aren't too many like him around. I mean, the Devoto runs hard lines, but he's not the same bulk. Um, I think he's a really high caliber player. But he, again, you just think about all those matchups. There's so many good ones. You know, um, I, I I can't wait for it. It's going to be really really fun. And if if we don't get a good good match out of this one, I, I will be I'll be staggered actually. Yeah, agree, agree. Oh, Ali, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you this morning. Thank you so much for talking to us about your new podcast. Tell her where where can everybody find it and what is it called? We've said it enough. I've probably bored everybody into submission by now, but it's called Inside the Tour. Uh, You can find us on Twitter at Inside Tour Pod. Uh, We're very fortunate to have Vodafone sponsoring us, so delighted about that. And there's lots of good Vodafone stuff, by the way, on their Lions app. If you haven't downloaded that, you probably should because it's it's a great way of staying in touch with the the current tour. There's all sorts of things on there. And they're doing uh, a number of different little programs through the course of the tour as well called Lions Live with, uh, with Flats. Um, loads of great stuff with their ambassadors, Sam Warburton, Stuart Hogg, and all sorts of others. So have a little look at that. But it's called Inside the Tour. So I really hope you enjoy it. Uh, it, it is leaning heavy on nostalgia. I think that much is abundantly clear. But as one of the all-time great sporting tours, it's hard not to get excited about it. And I really hope that there's more good stuff to follow um, across different sports as well as we discuss. So yeah, I hope you enjoy it. Thanks, thanks so much for having me on. Amazing. It's been, an, as I say, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, chatting to you and hopefully, you know, maybe next season we can, we can get you on again and, and talk about some premiership stuff and, you know, the next, the next Inside the Tour. No problem, let's do it. Thank you very much. Speak to you soon. Cheers, Ali. Cheers, Doug. Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.